river of blood? That wasn't strange enough for you? You need more? You're about to get more. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast, the only podcast I know of, where we walk slowly, passage by passage, through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in Canto 12. We are in the seventh circle of hell. I should say Canto 12 of Inferno. We are amongst the violent and specifically those who have done violence toward others. We have come down a scree-filled slope. Virgil has explained a bit more of his backstory. Curious that Virgil has a backstory even in the afterlife, much less the life up top on the globe. And now here's the river itself and those who were on its shore. Lines 49 through 75 of Canto 12 of Inferno. Oh, blind cupidity and foolish rage that so goad us in this short life and then simmer us cruelly for eternity. I saw a wide ditch curved into an arc that seemed to encircle the whole plain, just as my guide had stated. Between the foot of the cliff and this ditch, centaurs ran along in single file, armed with arrows, just as when they went out for a hunt in our world. When they saw us coming down, they all stopped, and three set out from the company with bows and arrows chosen with great care. One cried out from a ways off, For what torment are you headed, you who descend the slope? Tell me from right where you are. If not, I'll draw my bow. My master said, We will make a reply to Chiron when we get closer. To your discredit, your will was always too hasty. Then he elbowed me and said, That is Nasus, who died because of the beautiful Deonyra, and so made of himself his own vendetta. That one in the middle, who's looking at his own chest, is the great Chiron, who nurtured Achilles. The other is Pholos, who was always so full of rage. Around this ditch they go, thousands upon thousands of them, shooting any spirit who pulls itself up out of the blood more than its guilt permits. That's where we're going to stop it, just with the introduction of the centaurs, because that seems way enough in this passage. This passage has a couple of problems in it. It's a lot of plot. So let's just start with the first three lines, which are perhaps the biggest problem of the whole passage. Out from behind the curtain, like the Wizard of Oz, steps the man, the poet, and he says... Oh, blind cupidity and foolish rage that so goad us in this short life and then simmer us cruelly for eternity. An invective. And then we go right back to the pilgrim walking. Why this interjection? A narrative interruption from the poet in Canto, Canto 12, with no words directly from the pilgrim. Let's look at it very carefully. First is this address or this woe is to blind cupidity and foolish rage. Cupidity, that is greed, avariciousness. It's a word that is extraordinarily full of all kinds of theological ramifications. It gets picked up and used by St. Paul. The word here in the Tuscan is cupidigia, and it is used five times 
in comedy. This is the first time cupidigia is used. And you'll note it's connected to the word blind. And the last time it's it's used is right toward the end of comedy in Paradiso, Canto 30, line 139. It will be used again, and it will again include the adjective blind. So the first time this word is used in comedy, it's blind cupidity. The last time it's used, it's blind cupidity. So there is something about avarice, about greed, about this unbelievable uh, love of money that, that Paul excoriates in one of his epistles. It's something about this that leads to blindness. And it's something about rage, ira, that leads to fole. And we've talked about this word fole before, meaning mad overreach. There is something about rage that leads to a mad overreach and something about cupidity that leads to blindness that is particularly galling to the poet and I think he hopes toward us too. The sins, avarice and rage, those seven deadly sins are becoming more and more the motivations for evil, but not the acts of evil. That's an incredible deepening of an understanding of human behavior. What we have here, and you don't have to accept the seven deadly sins. I, I don't accept it. But, but if you just step back from it and look at it, what you have here is this understanding that underneath the actions of evil are motivations of evil, and they may not be the same thing. That may seem obvious to you. You may say, well, of course it's not the same. But that's because you live in the 21st century. So, of course, you're going to say they're not the same thing. This is a deepening understanding of human behavior, that the motivations may be different from the actions. I'm not sure that we can claim with Francesca that her motivations and her actions are differentiated in any way. But by the time we're down here in Canto 12, it seems like that's what's happening. And it seems like the poet is stepping it out from behind the scenes to explain it to us and then to explain to us the two basic motivations of this canto. So it's interesting that A, there's human motivation, and B, in this speech, there are the motives or the metaphors that underline this canto because this is a blind cupidity and foolish wish that so goad us, and he uses the verb spronare, which is to, to goad, that's like a horse. It's like to prod it on, to prick it. And so it moves by your spurs that, that goad us, that spur us on in this short life and then simmer us cruelly for eternity. So the two metaphors here are horseback riding and cooking, which are the two basic metaphors that are going to occur in this canto from now on out. We're going to have instances of people being cooked in the boiling river of blood, and we're going to have an instance of horseback riding really soon in this canto. Isn't it interesting that the poet offers us an underlying motivation for human action and then also explicates for us the underlying metaphors of the poetics of this canto, as if there is surface and depth. And again, you may say, well, obviously there's surface and depth, and obviously the two aren't always exactly mirrors of each other. Yeah, that's because you're a modern. This is this dawning notion that the depths and the surface may not actually be the same thing. There may not be a unified whole all the way down from the surface into the depths of being. 
The pilgrim says, I saw a wide ditch curved into an arc that seemed to encircle the whole plane, just as my guide had stated. We're being told again, Virgil is a sure guide to the geography, to the landscape of hell. And then comes the big sight. Between the foot of the cliff and the ditch, centaurs ran along in single file armed with arrows, just as they went out for a hunt in our world. It's important to note that single file, that they're going along in single file. Why? Because it's super orderly. For much of the Middle Ages, the metaphor for the relationship of the body and the soul is the relationship between a horse and its rider. It becomes almost a trope, almost a cliche in the Middle Ages, that in fact, the body is the horse and the soul is the rider and the soul can either control the horse, <laughs> the rider can even either control the horse or the soul can either control the body or the soul can let the body control itself and go out of control. And this is an extraordinarily old bit of iconography and it's going to happen with these centaurs who are half horses half humans in this case the mixed they're mixed up it's unclear who's the rider and who's the beast with a centaur and that's part of the problem here this is such old iconography and it becomes so important to the west you can even follow this out with jane eyre and rochester way up in the 19th century read jane eyre sometime and watch for the relationship of rochester and then later the character of sinjin rivers watch for their relationship with horses and how they ride horses it will tell you everything you need to know about what bronte thinks about these two men in relationship to her heroine jane eyre but <laughs> that's a long way off from comedy. So I'm just saying that in single file is important because they're orderly. Like they have got uh, uh, the body and the soul in a kind of orderly progression. They can go along in single file. And yet at the same time, they are a confused set of problems because it's hard to see exactly where the body stops and the writer starts. Let's talk about them for a minute. Centaurs come from many places mythologically, and many people, many commentators point to Ovid, uh, to the Metamorphoses, to Book 12, for Dante's understanding of centaurs. I actually don't think it's from there. I think that if you go back and read Book 12, I just read it this morning before I recorded this podcast. I read Book 12 again, and I kept thinking to myself, this is not in this passage that we're reading here. I mean, I'm sure it's up in Dante's head. He knows his Ovid really well. It's more from Lucan's Pharsalia in Book 6, right around line 390, that famous book where a Richtho occurs of um, the Pharsalia. Right in there are these very centaurs mentioned in this. Essentially, the three we see here are mentioned in that passage. And those centaurs seem much more like these centaurs. He may know centaurs from Ovid. He may know where they come from. There's so many different myth legends of where these half horses, half men come from. The most common is uh, that they are a product of King Ixion and a cloud who has been made to a cloud nymph who has been made to resemble Juno. Here's how it works. Um, Ixion is invited to a banquet of the gods up on Mount Olympus. Ixion sees Juno, falls in love with her. Zeus gets very mad at this. So Ju Zeus takes a cloud nymph, one of the nymphs around, into essentially a cloud that looks like Juno. Ixion wakes up by this cloud. They have sex. Uh, they end up having a, a very weird and bestial-like child who goes down 
kind of goes off on his own and ultimately copulates with horses. And it's the, the kind of the grandchildren of Ixion and this cloud made to resemble Juno that become the centaurs. There's other mythological references to them. There's all kinds of references to how they occur from actually from Zeus himself, actually from his semen leaking out of heaven and hitting the ground. And honestly, this is so compressed in this passage that it seems to be more like the compression that exists in Lucan's Pharsalia, where they're basically just listed off as part of the weirdness of Thessaly of this of this region of Greece that Lucan is writing about, kind of the weird landscape that it is, that it had these centaurs in it, and here they are. It seems like Dante is compressing a lot into one bit. So when the centaurs saw them coming down, they stopped. The three set out from the company with bows and arrows chosen greatly. One of them cried out from a ways off, for what torment are you headed, you who descend this slope? So clearly this centaur thinks that these are some of the damned who've escaped. Remember, we kind of came across this with Phlegas and Styx. Maybe there's a way that the damned can kind of get out of the holes they're in, get out of the circles that they're in, and wander off. And it seems as if this is the first take the centaurs have of these of these two coming toward them, of Virgil and Dante the Pilgrim, that, you know, who are you and why are you headed down here? Because obviously, it, once Minos throws you over the edge, way up there in circle two, well, you know, you just land where you're supposed to land. And clearly some get away and stray off inside of Inferno. And the centaur says, tell me where you are. No, don't move. And if you if you come any closer, I'm going to draw my bow. And what's amazing here is Virgil doesn't seem very concerned. <laughs> I mean, listen, if this giant horseman thing was, was pulling a bow back with one of its very cruel arrows, I would certainly quake for a minute. Virgil doesn't seem to you know, he's just like, I don't know, we're not worried about you, don't worry about you. And then he he explains things and explains things to the pilgrim. I'm just always amused by Virgil's blasé attitude in this passage. Again, I wouldn't be so blasé. Is this because Virgil's already been here? And he already knows these characters. Is this because Virgil wrote about these characters in the Aeneid? I don't know. It's It would certainly set me to quaking. And the pilgrim doesn't seem all that concerned either. So what does Virgil say? He says, we will make a reply to Chiron when we get closer. Chiron, the lead centaur, apparently, of this group. Chiron, the constellation Sagittarius, that centaur, the teacher of Achilles and Hercules. This is the famed teacher who knew geometry and math and who knew languages, the scholar centaur. So Virgil doesn't want anything to do with who's talking to them, who we find out is Nasus, doesn't want anything to do with Nasus, and instead just wants to speak to the head guy, wants to speak to the scribe, wants to speak to the learned one of the group. And Virgil says, to your discredit, your will was always too hasty. And then he elbows, I love this bit, he nudges the pilgrim and says, okay, here's the explanation. That's Nasus who died because of the beautiful Dionyra. It's hard for me not to say that. Sorry. It's just the old classical Greek major in <laughs> I want to say Deanera, and I want to put it into the Greek, and I can't. So, okay, I'll try it in the English. <laughs> Deanira. Um, and Deanira is the wife of Hercules. Let me just tell you the story here. Basically, Nasus captures Hercules' wife, Deonyra, 
carries her off. She screams. Um, Hercules fires an arrow, wounds Nasus badly. As he's lying there dying, the centaur, he says to Dianara, you know, Hercules is, is none too stable and fidelis a lover. And if you want to make sure that he will always be in love with you, dip a coat in my blood and then give it to him and it will bind him to you. Well, she does. They go off. Hercules goes off and does all of his battles, his challenges, and also all of his lovemaking with hundreds of descendants everywhere. Dianara finally says, okay, fine, I'm going to try the cloak out, puts the cloak on him, and it's a trick. The blood-soaked coat, because of the blood of the centaur, burns Hercules so badly that he jumps on a funeral pyre and immolates himself. And it's the ultimate revenge of the centaur, Nasus. So that, standing there, who was who was threatening us, is Nasus, who died because of the beautiful Deonira, and so made of himself his own vendetta. And it's vendetta in the text, and you know I'm going to make a great deal out of it. Because again, where else would you talk about vendetta except in the circle of the violent who do violence against others? This is coming toward a head of the cycle of violence. And it's uh, it's just going to keep coming up that this is the problem, that people are treated unjustly or they're treated in a certain way and they form vendettas. We found a righteous vendetta a couple episodes ago when God's vendetta was discussed. But here again, We just have this cycling violence and shame that keeps cycling round and round and producing chaos. So the one that's that's the first one, Nessus, who messed with us. The one in the middle who's looking at his chest is the great Chiron who nurtured Achilles and, as I said, and Hercules. Charles Singleton points out that this detail, who's looking at his own chest, it may seem, you know, well, just a a standard naturalistic detail that Chiron's head is down, but it may actually point out that Chiron, who is the smart one of the bunch, the scholar of the bunch, the one who nurtured and schooled Achilles and Hercules, is looking at the part of himself where the horse meets the man. He's looking down at the mingled part of horse and man, of beast and man. So he's looking down at where his nature divides. And you'll notice that these centaurs, the way they speak, the way they speak proper Florentine, the way they act, this is not the Minotaur. They are, these centaurs are much more human than they are beast, as opposed to the Minotaur, which was much more beast than it is human. Apparently, there can be degrees of bestiality and humanity inside of a being. But what being? Well, before we get there, let's just say the last centaur is Pholos, who was always so full of rage. And again, this seems to be just picked up. This particular Pholos, who was always so full of rage, seems to be picked up directly from Lucan's Pharsalia and set down here. And it's interesting because actually this is the only time that Pholos will be mentioned in the passage. And otherwise, the passage is going to turn on Nessus and Chiron. I don't know why there are three. Is it a blasphemous trinity? Is it a blasphemous representation of some kind of bestial human fusing in the way that Christ in Christian theology is a divine human fusing? Dante seems to want three of them for a specific reason, and I don't think Dante does anything haphazardly or just off the cuff. So why there's three? Big question. And if we were in a graduate seminar on Dante, I'd ask you to deposit. Why? 
Why are they three? And Virgil says, around the ditch they go, thousands upon thousands of them. Now, their name is centaurs, remember? Centaurs, a hundred. The whole point is that there are a hundred of them, centaurs. But Dante's expanded the ranks dramatically. Thousands and thousands of them are going around this river of roiling, boiling blood, shooting any spirit who pulls itself up out of the blood more than its guilt permits. And now you get the first inkling of what the punishment is here. Those who have been violent against others are sunk into this boiling blood in various degrees, some up to their hair, some up to their chins, some up to their chests, some, as you'll see, just at their feet. So you can get up and down in this boiling blood based on your guilt, and the centaurs are there to kind of reinforce that, to make sure that you don't pull yourself up too far out of it, or perhaps those whose only their feet are stuck in the boiling blood, they don't just walk out of it. Let's say something more about these centaurs. Who are these centaurs? Are they tormentors? Yes. They've got their arrows. They're going to shoot them at the violent who are violent against others. They, in fact, are going to be violent against the spirits in this circle. So, yes, they are tormentors. We haven't seen just a tormentor since Cerberus, way back amongst the gluttons. And Cerberus was a kind of guardian, allegory, and tormentor, although Karen does beat the souls with his oar, he doesn't seem a tormentor as his modus operandi. These guys really are tormentors. Their whole point is to make sure you stay in the boiling blood just where you were placed. It seems like they're not so much guardians, but uh, here's a bad word, merely, merely tormentors. It's curious what they're doing here. It's curious that the punishment is meted out by a classical figure in this circle. Again, the last time we saw this was Cerberus, who raked the gluttons with his claws. And admittedly, the, the circle of gluttony must have been very big. So if Cerberus kind of wound his way around that circle, sure, he was raking the gluttons with his, his claws, but, you know, it'd take him a while to come back to me around that giant circle up there. Here, there are thousands of centaurs, and they're constantly shooting at the violent. And there are tormentors, guardians, allegories, pieces of the quest, the, bo the body-soul question, how the soul is in control of the body, or is it the centaurs seem to be pretty much in control, single file, arrows drawn, out for a hunt, seem to be pretty much in control, and yet it's kind of a blasphemous, bestial human mingling. And let me just say that all of the commentaries focus in Canto 12 on the centaurs. What's going to happen is we're going to have more of the centaurs in the next episode, and then we're going to start to get a list of those boiling in the blood. And everybody who comments on this, this canto comments on the centaurs. They fixate on them, and with good reason. In the next episode, you'll see there's more naturalistic detail for them. They become even more, I hate to use this word, but even more human, these centaurs do. Are they part of the labyrinth of the seventh circle of hell? There's a Minotaur, remember? And remember I said I was going to ask you the question repeatedly, is the seventh circle of hell a labyrinth? Are the centaurs part of the labyrinth? Are they part of the ways that you can get lost? Because if you focus on the centaurs in this canto, you miss what's being punished. Let me go back to the opening lines of this episode. 
Oh, blind cupidity and foolish rage that so goad us in this short life and then simmer us cruelly for eternity. Maybe that's set up there to say, are you paying attention to this? This theological statement, this statement about the human condition and the poetics of this canto itself. Are you paying attention to this? Are you going to pay attention to the naturalistic details of the centaurs? And are you going to get lost in thinking about who the centaurs are, what they do, what they look like, how they act? If so, you're noticing the wrong things. Or to put it in terms of previous episodes, you're noticing Farinata and you're missing Cavalcante. You're noticing the tormentors and you're not noticing what's being tormented. And this circle, violence against others, is Dante's world. Many early commentators said that these centaurs running around the ditch with their arrows drawn in their bows, ready to shoot, are functioning much like highway bandits did in Dante's day. Maybe, and that could be absolutely here. But again, I would say that if you're paying attention to the centaurs, you might be paying attention to the wrong thing. It may be that the poet has inserted that statement, that theological statement about cupidity and rage, inside of this canto to remind you what you're reading. The story may get more important than its point. And I want to remind you, the poet may be saying, that the point is more important than the story. And let me just stop and say one thing about that. There is no one who has ever written a text who hasn't faced that dilemma. People write novels to explore ideas. They write novels to explore, I don't know, a certain sociological perspective, a certain moment in time. Uh, They write novels in order to further explore the human condition, all of that kind of stuff. And they've got a point, you know, the human condition is, I don't know, the human condition is ambiguous. How banal can that possibly be? The human condition is ambiguous or the human condition is this or that. Since I brought her up, let's talk about Jane Eyre. Bronte is writing that novel to talk about the position of a woman in a world dominated by domineering men and that Jane has got to figure out how to channel her rage inside of this world in which men want to do nothing but put her in a boxing controller. I mean, in the end, toward the end, before the miracle on the moors, but toward the end when St. John Rivers, the Calvinist minister, stands there and proposes to her. And what does he say in his, pro- in his, in his proposal of marriage? Know me for what I am, a cold, hard man. Oh. Wow, there's a marriage proposal for you. Jane knows, and Bronte wants you to know, that Jane is going to have to suppress herself entirely and suppress her rage in order to marry St. John Rivers. And she's going to have to suppress the whitest, hottest part of herself in order to marry this Calvinist minister. That's her point. And yet, the story of Jane Eyre runs bigger than the point. Every writer of imaginative literature faces this, that the point... And the story at some point get into tension with each other. Because, listen, if I just wanted to to, to make a point, I could write you an essay or I could preach you a sermon. Instead, I'm writing you a narrative. And the narrative becomes more seductive than the point. And it strikes me that in this passage, we might see that the story, centaurs, rivers of blood, shooting arrows, wow, big, (laughs) readers of the Lost Ark level of narrative development going on here. 
we might be forgetting, oops, the point of what's going on here. Dante the poet might feel the need to step in and control it like a rider does a horse. Because if a horse and rider are the metaphor for the body and the soul, they're also a metaphor for the text and the writer. That is, the writer must control the text or else the text will take over and you'll start to notice all the wrong things like these fabulous centaurs standing on a river of blood shooting arrows at the damned. I hope you enjoyed this messy and difficult podcast of Walking with Dante. So much getting thrown around. You know, when, back when I was a college professor, I used to have this theory that my job was to go in and talk about, well, since it's come up so much, Jane Eyre, reduce it to absolute mess in front of all the students and then walk out without drawing any conclusions. Just pull all the problems out of it and then say, well, now you're on your own to figure out how it actually works. I used to say that was my, my modus operandi. It's not anymore, but I feel a little bit like that in this episode. It's a little messy, a lot to think about, but that's okay. That's why we're walking slowly, because there's time to think. Subscribe, like this podcast, come back next time. Hey, because we got to find out about these people in this boiling river of blood, because you know what? They're the point, not these centaurs. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you next time on Walking with Dante.